0: For me, fashion is a verb, so it's to fashion. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis with Claire Press. Join me every week as we look at sustainability, ethics, and the business and madness of fashion. Hello again, how are you doing this week? I'm in Copenhagen, it's Fashion Week. More on this later, but I'll be recording a bunch of shows for you from here, one of my favourite cities, and so much going on, but... This week, I should say, check out my Instagram at Mrs. Press if you want to see what's happening with the shows and with the sustainability agenda of Copenhagen, because it is major. Anyway, this week, we've got a fascinating interview for you. My guest is Nishant Chopra, founder of Oshadi. He calls it a seed to sow fashion supply chain. So it's a women's wear brand, but it's also an artisanal textile company and it's also a network of regenerative cotton farms. Now, no doubt you've heard the buzz about regenerative agriculture. It's like the word, isn't it? Word of the moment. Now, I like the idea of harmony. I think that that's one of the kind of central tenets of this idea of regenerative agriculture, which essentially means not just refraining from drenching the land with pesticides, but actually feeding the land and regenerating the topsoil and leaving the place in a better state than that which you found it in, I guess. Obviously, I love all that. But have you ever thought about who actually has to put it into practice for the textile sector at the soil level? His farmers, obviously. I mean, brands can say they want it and talk a big talk about using it or using materials derived from it. Regulators can try to incentivize it. And then you've got chemical companies who want to stop it. But at the end of the day, it is the grower. It's the farmer who has to actually implement it. Now, for cotton, the global cotton industry is massive. It's worth, I don't know, I don't have the stats in front of me, but billions But I can tell you that the biggest producer by country is China and Chinese cotton farms tend to be really enormous. But the second biggest by country is India and it's a very different story there. Indian cotton is all about small producers. It's also these days all about GM and chemical inputs, something I wrote about this in Wardrobe Crisis, the book many years ago, how the industry has changed so much since the arrival of then Monsanto. Pretty gross story. But what do you think it's like for a small scale Indian cotton farmer to try to change that and also to try and make a living? What challenges do they face and Also, what's in it for them if they do decide to transition their fields and methods back to the old ways? Because actually organic and regenerative are the old ways. We've got these new buzzwords for them, but a lot of it is just common sense and about how we used to do stuff before we mechanised and I don't think chemicalized is a word, but I'm just going to say it, everything. Much of the discussion around growing cotton comes out of reports, obviously, and these come from industry, from academics, from brands. But I think while we need this data and this context, it tends to leave us quite cold. So I'm talking about, I don't know, a pie chart that shows you, I'm making this up, but I've definitely seen similar things that shows you like what's the percentage of the total global crop that is organic or that is conventional in inverted commas, that means chemically drenched. Or you've got like, I don't know, graphs that show the volumes of pesticides used or etc we need these numbers we need the prices we need these percentages but to me there's something lacking in all of this and that of course is the people people can't be summed up in a line on a spreadsheet and that's what drives Nishant we recorded this last year in the Netherlands in Arnhem But at the time, everyone was talking about this really explosive New York Times investigation, we'll share a link, that exposed the problems with organic cotton certifications in India. And he told me about visiting farmers and seeing for himself how this might happen. It comes down to people and, of course, power imbalance. There's always that, isn't it? Brands make their demands from a distance, often with little understanding of what's happening on the ground. One of the words that Nishant used that struck me was empathy. He believes that's what's missing. That's what needs to guide leadership and relationship building in this space. But like local experience, that is often in short supply. Throw in a lack of education on the farmer side, and no wonder the situation around certifications could be a mess. Who can blame the farmer, Nishant says, for ticking the organic box on some bureaucrat's form when they don't really know what it means. He also talked about a disconnect with cause and effect. And he said, because of a lack of education, there can often be a failure to make the connection between, say, someone in the family getting sick and what is polluting the river. Listen to the bit where he talks about Erode in Tamil Nadu, where he's from. It's one of India's largest textile dyeing hubs and the river there is trashed. Here's a report from an Indian newspaper, the Indian Express, that I pulled out. It was sheer desperation that pushed a group of farmers from Tirupur and Erode to approach the Madras High Court, seeking to curtail the flow of the Noyal water through their villages. Once a great nurturer of life, the river had turned into an effluent carrier that reportedly turns even the groundwater toxic. This episode's about alternatives. It's also about one extraordinary young man's drive to make a difference and his galvanising tactics. Let's just say Nishant Chopra is not someone willing to take no for an answer. He's proving it can be done. Let's get to it. Welcome to the Water Crisis podcast, Nishant Chopra.
1: Thank you for having me, Claire.
0: We are in Arnhem, in Arnhem in the Netherlands. Yesterday, as part of the State of Fashion Biennale, you were doing this block printing workshop in the park.
1: Oh yeah, it was amazing. Um, It was with one of the master block printers, Shambab from Rajasthan, and it was an opportunity where we could amplify the real people behind what we do. But what did you do? I mean, describe it. We hosted a workshop where we brought in all the natural dyes and Shamba Buchipa who taught people how to block print, so we brought in Rajasthani sand, clay, we brought in natural dyes, and he taught people how to do it, and everyone block printed and took back little souvenirs from the workshop of what they've block printed on. Yeah, It was amazing. What do you
0: think people took from
1: it? Just the intricacy of the craft, and, you know, it's so labour-intensive to make something which is truly crafted. And people start to analyze like the stories behind their clothes. And I think that's exactly what they take back.
0: The printer is something like seventh generation. He's been doing it
1: through his family. Yeah, he's a seventh generation printer and the first person to come out of India and and be able to showcase his skill in the last couple hundred years. So it's a big moment for him because, you know, normally people... Artisans. I also like to call them artist artisans because, you know, like that's exactly what they are, specifically from India. They don't have opportunity to come out because that's the kind of situation they are in. The brands take a lot of things from them, but never try mm-hmm. to give it back. And, you know, when you actually compare like craftspeople, artisans from India to someone in Italy or France, when you think about craftsmanship in Italy, you think about these exceptional like ateliers and you know, people doing crazy stuff. But when you think about an artisan in India, you see a man, like, you know, just doing his thing in a small shack and, you know, you feel sorry for him, but that's not where it all should come from. You know, it should come from the same level of respect you have for a person in France or Mm. you have for a person in Italy. And, you know, that's how you look through. That's the lenses, not through the lenses of sympathy. And, you know, it's through the lenses of skills, ability to do things you know, which is way beyond a normal uh, skill set.
0: Well, an interesting perspective, and I think you're absolutely right. Why is it, well, I expect it is partly racism, partly a kind of Eurocentric lens on what sophistication or quality means. I don't know. Because why is it? Why do we say we venerate the Hermes bag sewer, and yet we need to help the craftsperson in... Southeast Asia or in Africa
1: yeah that's how it's built up unfortunately like for a brown or a black designer to come out and do well and succeed they have to try twice or maybe three times as hard you know that's how the the system has been created like that's how the generations before us like you know and that's all communications media marketing like you know you get fed those things as you're a kid. So, you know, like so many Indian people already have an inferiority complex. When they come out, they feel like, oh, you know, what is this? That kind of stuff. But, you know, those things are like kind of fed into a child. It subconsciously, you know, feeds them that, you know, we are, you know, here to serve someone or we are here to work for people. And we are, you. But whereas like crap people here, they are brought up with straight up, like, you know, this is it. You're an absolutely amazing craftsman. People value for your skill. You are. You know, it's demanding what you do, so you have to demand for it. But people there are brought up in a service mindset. We need to serve people, which is kind of good in a way, because, you know, like, at least you have a service mindset. When you go in, you're really thinking about the consumer or, you know, really respecting the person, but, you know, they don't get it back.
0: I met with the printer, Shyam Babu, I actually sat next to him at dinner two nights ago. He's amazing. So he doesn't speak very much English. So he, we were talking through showing each other, well, him showing me pictures. And his work is incredible because he's obviously got this rich heritage that goes back generations. But he's really interested in doing things differently. And he was showing me a print that he had created that looked like tie dye. And I said, it looks like tie dye. And he went, no, that's how I did it. And that's how I managed it. And then I was saying, you like to reinvent things. And he was like, absolutely. I want to make it modern.
1: Yeah that's exactly another thing because most of the artisans you see they don't have access to good education and the kids now they they have now the ability to do that to avail that and now they are coming back with a really modern mindset mm. but for the last three or four generation it was just same consistent thing because they get of course like one of the most important thing about craft is you have to learn it at a very young age to really excel at it to really do it subconsciously, to really do it without thinking. Like, you know, that's really important when it comes to skill set. And that means, like, they've been working since they were six, 10, 12, like, you know, at a very tender age, like, young age. And, and the techniques are fixed. It's in their subconscious mind. You can't take it out from them. But, you know, when, when you're 18, you become really conscious. When you're 21, you become really conscious. And then when you start learning things, you start judging them. And it's really hard for you to grasp certain things. But when you're young, it comes naturally when it gets fed into you. And, Of course, it's been a big asset for, you know, him and his parents and everyone who came before them to carry on the skills. But for his son to really succeed, he needs to reinvent this.
0: But there's something quite interesting and I think exciting about bringing new design lens to a traditional craft. I mean, that's what you do.
1: It's a very demanding industry. It's a very demanding, you know, market. And in order to cope up, you have to, uh, you know, keep up the design every aspect of it it's got to be design it's got to be like you know the market and stuff like and that's why a lot of these traditional crafts get left behind yeah because they are not able to meet the demanding lifestyle of the modern consumer or demanding purchase orders of you know the brands or you know like the shorter lead times the fashion weeks everyone's like on and on and on talking of a
0: modern take on a traditional motif or technique When you walked in, I was like, that is a very good jacket. Please describe it.
1: Yeah, this is a jacket of a brand we work with. We produce for them. Uh, The brand's called Gentlefulness. It's a spin-off brand of Story MFG. And uh, they're trying to make like, a. it's a different, you know, different shapes, different customer and kind of secretly technical because... The jacket is coated with organic and natural water repellent pigments and it can avoid drizzle.
0: Secretly technical. <laughs> yeah, secretly. <laughs> but describe have... it so it's like a kind of...
1: Yeah, it's a block printed jacket, organic cotton canvas. Bit of a parka. Yeah, it's like a parka jacket and but a much better shape, of course. And uh, it's hand block printed and then it was treated with a water repellent natural and organic uh, pigment and it makes it water repellent. You said to me
0: drizzle-proof.
1: Drizzle-proof, <laughs> but not rain-proof. Yeah. What, what's your shirt? It's embroidered with peace sign. It's also story MFG, embroidered with carrots. And carrots. <laughs> peace sign, some other vegetables, maybe. And it's like, <laughs> there's like a crochet attaching. It's a linen shirt, all natural dyed. I love this brand. Uh, yeah, we work really with good. them, we produce. Um, yeah, we, we do a production for them.
0: Okay, so... You are the founder of something called Oshadi, which is a women's wear brand, but it's more than that because it's a seed to garment concept. You're based in Erode in Tamil Nadu in India. On your website, you say... Today, we're cultivating a new fashion system, one rooted in ancient Indian agricultural practices and artisan heritage. With a 50-acre regenerative cotton farmer at its heart, we share what we've built with brands and designers, whose values align with our simple ethos to give back more than we take.
1: Yeah, we started, of course, as a women's wear brand back in 2015, 2016, the goal was to somehow become a bridge between the traditional crafts, the traditional textile techniques, traditional farming techniques of India with a more modern market, more consumer, modern lifestyle. And uh, we started with the women's wear collection and then we were not happy with what we achieved. Uh, So we started like a small cut and sew and we still were not happy. We didn't know where the fabric was coming from. So we started getting in yarn and weaving our own fabrics and getting, getting the dye still not happy. You started exploring natural dyeing, organic dyeing. And then, you know, it somehow led us to what at the start of it, like, you know, well, we, I watched a movie called Mir Mirkutarachi Malay. It's a South Indian movie. It's about a farmer who works really hard, like 20, 30 years of his life to get hold of a land. And he gets the land by working for like 20 years or something. It's a, he's a cardamom farmer. And, um, As soon as he gets it, he goes into a fertilizer and seed shop to do his first crop because that's always been his ambition. And he gets given a loan to get these GMO seeds and chemical fertilizers. And the first season he does it, it's amazing because, you know, like the yield is impeccable and it's great. But second, third, fourth season, the soil has built the tolerance. So it's wanting more of the chemicals. He ends up selling the land because that's on mortgage uh, for the chemicals and fertilizer to the GMO company. And is this what sit- happens? Yeah, it's a very common story. It happens in different ways. It's not exactly the story, but this is what's going on. I was like, why do I complain about these things? Why don't we start something? And at that point of time, the next morning I woke up and just in time it, it was meant to happen. But I re- listened to this podcast uh, by Rebecca Burgess from Fiverr. Oh yeah, she's amazing. Yeah, uh, she's great. And I was like, everything she is, talking about on this podcast is what I really want to do here. And I just like cold emailed her to random email saying, Hey, uh, Rebecca, this is this, I want to do this. I need some sort of support and funding. Can you help me out? And yeah, I heard back from there and she connected us to Christy Don and some other brands and she gave us a funding also. And we started this regenerative cotton project. It was like a five acre plot where the goal was to see, if it's really possible because I keep complaining that why is someone not doing something when I don't even know if the logistics work okay, if it's okay to grow the cotton, you know, at this rate and buy the cotton and would it work for me? Would it work for farmer? Would it work for the brand? So we started this five acre plot and we were fortunate and it worked out and 50 acre was uh, a year and a half ago. We now do 200 acres of regenerative cotton farming where we partner with farmers, 137 farmers, or somewhere around that. And it's like brands come on board a year in advance and they like-minded brands. Why do we
0: need to change the way most cotton is grown then? What's wrong with it? Um, I, mean, I mean,
1: pesticides, but yeah, what pesticides, else? monocropping, you know. Um, like you said, you, you told me the story about this Australian land which you visited and where are the trees? Leveling
0: the land, leveling leveling the the land, land. and irrigation.
1: Yeah, irrigation. Taking water that isn't there, isn't
0: available for everyone.
1: When you've just disturbed the natural course of life, the natural course of like agriculture, the forest, and things, and now like you're trying to make up for it by even destroying it more and more, like monoculture, flatlands, like irrigating, changing the course of like canals and, you know, like all these irrigations you take out from the public water bodies. Back in the day, like in India, there was rainwater harvesting because they would have check dams, they would have big ponds, everyone would have ponds. But now like no one wants to have ponds because like they want to make the most use of the one acre they have. Okay, but
0: recently it's also come to light that the story of organic cotton is not simple either. The New York Times ran an investigative feature. It was called, Your Organic Cotton T-shirt May Not Be As Organic As You Think. And it said much of the organic cotton that makes it to store shelves might not actually be organic at all. And they talked to a bunch of different people from textile exchange to auditors to farmers. Long story short, more organic cotton is sold than produced. So it's all to do with paper trading corruption, where no one really knows what is in the system. This is political and it's very complex. And I know it's also not what you do, but what's your take on this?
1: The reason we decided not to certify our supply chains and because like I come from the same place where this article is coming from. What's happened? Like there's been organic certifications for the last 15 years. How has that changed? How many lives that has impacted? Can I get a list of those lives that's Mm -hmm. been impacted? And I can't see it. Mm. It's on the books, but what's it used? Like if it's on the books, it's in records. Yeah, it's amazing. But can you see it?
0: Well, in this this feature, and we'll share a link, you can read it. It's been written by four different journalists doing a lot of investigative work it's a big thing one was Alden Wick and one was Elizabeth Payton who's
1: amazing but
0: basically they're talking to farmers who are saying there's no organic cotton grown here
1: there's no organic it so might I, it might say on paper it was there's like 900 or 1000 acres i've actually visited when we first started organic farming uh, i was visiting lots of farmers to see like how they do things and you know what are the practices they they bring in and i saw this farm, like massive farm like 1000 acres it's like 100 kilometres from thousand acres means no one farm, but many different farmers coming together. And that it's around like 900 to 1000 acres. But anyway, like I was talking to them and no one absolutely knows like what organic cotton farming is. And they just know that these are the records they need to maintain. That's what they write in. And this is where they store stuff in. And they do like cow down compost. But when things go wrong, they put like pest repellents and weedicides and stuff like that. And I was really surprised. I was like, That's how things work. I'm not really here to criticize and stuff like that, but that's the face of it. The reason it's been like that is because when the brands are coming in, they are demanding like, hey, you do this or I bail. I have another supplier. You or someone else, you know, it's up to you to change. That's not the mindset you got to work with. Like, you know, it's not going to change. It's going to create fear. It's going to create restlessness. And that's not going to bring a change. What you have to do is you have to come in and like, Partner with them, like, hey, you know what? This is not okay, but we work together to make it okay. And, you know, it's going to cost, cost a bit more, but we commit to doing it rightly and let's change together.
0: So you're not certified? No, you're not. What would you say? Because I think people who haven't read this story and will share a link, and I wanted to make a podcast when that story came out, and I reached out to one of the people involved in it and got a silence. So I think people are a bit scared about some of it because it's very controversial. It's very political. People do want to do the right thing from certification bodies. It's not a great story to find out that maybe a lot of it is inaccurate. But leaving that aside, what would you say then to people listening, feeling, oh no, does that mean I'm buying a lie? Does that mean I can't buy this do product? Like, what do I do? You could be
1: buying a lie regardless. Mm-hmm. Like, you know what I mean? Like it. But the thing is, like, it's where we've been privileged is because... All these brands they really trusted us, and if things go wrong, they work with us to you know get it right. you know that's how we do it to the farm because that kind of mindset they put on us, it passes on to the tailors we work with, it passes on to the farmers we work with, because we know that these brands really believe in us and they trust us to you know do it rightly, and if there's something wrong, like for example, the first harvest was okay. But, you know, a lot of things went wrong in fabrications or spinning or, like, we did some sort of embroidery in the first collection and, you know, it didn't work out. But the brands didn't bail on us saying that, hey, you know what, I'm leaving because you're, you know, the first thing. Because it's a learning curve for each one of us when we start doing that. And when they decided to do second season with us, that's when I felt like this brand's, like, committed, you know, uh, and I'm definitely going to give try my best to not do that thing again and, you know, next That's how we grew from five acres to 200 acres in like two years, because every brand who became a part of this trusted us, eyes closed. And, you know, they know the nuances, what's chemical, what's not like, you know, how do we change this? It's not going to happen. It's not one season, but it's a period of season. And so when we first started doing uh, regenerative cotton, it was for like a brand, the first one of the first brands, Cristidon, we were doing like maybe 2% or maybe 5% of their cotton was regenerative cotton and everything was organic. Over a period of six seasons and nearly three years now. This year, like, I'm really proud, like, you know, that everything they're going to be doing is regenerative cotton. And that's the first brand possibly in the world to be able to just make collection out of regenerative cotton only. And they don't have to rely on outside. And it's been a patience, a lot of commitment, a lot of belief in changing.
0: How much of a problem is pollution in the area where erode is and the surrounds where there's all these, there's cotton production, but there's also textile dyeing and spinning facilities?
1: The most polluted, one of the most polluted rivers in the world, Noyal, it runs in that area. that right? Yeah, that's right. Is and it tanneries as well? Loads of tanneries, chromium sulphates, cancer. But erode has one of the highest infertility and cancer rates in, in, in India. I think every 13th person, is likely to get cancer or has cancer. Really? And yeah, it's absolutely insane. And like in vitro fertilization has become like a big business because like it's absolutely insane what's going on, but because it's the biggest dying hub, everything gets dyed and then it gets exported to, even within India, to Mumbai, Delhi, to garment factories. Oh, so this
0: is the area for no, that? No, this is the
1: area for dying. But like, like you said, like knitting doesn't pollute, but no, it also pollutes. There's so much dust. There's so much, every process has a residue like you know knitting has dust dyeing process has chemicals and stuff like that but i think it's uh zero discharge is um it's not working because so many factories they dig bore wells and put back the chemicals no one knows they have they have pipelines going all the way to the rivers secret pipelines and stuff like that but you know hopefully things will change next generation when they come in they have a new mindset and they decide to change things but
0: When you say new generation will change things, does it feel like there's an understanding that this can't go on? Laura,
1: do you feel like you're just
0: like there in the middle doing it when no one else is?
1: Everyone's talking about it, like from a finance perspective, which is still better than not talking about it. But if you ask me if I can actually see the change- Not yet. (laughs) Not yet. Like I I wouldn't, yeah, I'd lie if I said yes, but no. There's no considerable change, people, and when I say young generations would come and change things, it's just in hope. I don't really know, like, if that's happening because, like, no one's thinking about sustainability. No one's thinking that that war is what's ca- causing cancer. They don't have direct connections to the cause and the effect. Like, they think those two are different things, and they need to start relating. And now, what's happening is. Someone at their house is not well. Someone like, you know, mm-hmm. the thing is most of the people who are affected by these things are poor people yeah, because they drink public water. Like they drink this because like if you go to a big factory or someone's house, like, you know, it's privileged. They have like water purifying systems, even to take a shower. And people who live across the rivers, like who get river water, stuff like that. there's just so many days, like so many times, every, it's a weekly thing where, someone would complain that the water has color, like, you know, the shower.
0: As in color from dyes. Yeah, dyes. Still.
1: Yeah, it still happens uh, sometimes. We need to go hard on education, like, you know, just not thinking about what's happening, but what can we do to change this? And, like, you know, you go, like, you're doing it through a podcast. Everyone has to do it through the means they have to highlight what the right things to do are and someone gets it. Like, you know, so many things I've learned from your podcast in the last couple of years. And, you know, I hear so many different perspectives from around the world, from different designers and different brands, and that's exactly what it is. It needs someone, like, if I don't think if I would have not gone to England and studied, I would have understood what sustainability, because at that point of time in education, I was exposed to this thing, I was like, oh shit, this is not right. Like, you know, that's what's happening back home when I go back and that's when I go back I tell my parents, like, you know, dad, like, I think this is wrong because I was brought up in that tiny web. And for me, that's the life. But when you go out of it and come back, you're like, oh, shit, what is this? Like, dad, you know what? We need to change. But then he's like, it's something he's given his life for the last 50 years. So to suddenly think it's wrong and think otherwise, it's not easy. But he's now starting to think that. You what know? did he study? business studies, but my core was uh, management in the 21st century. That's why I read about sustainability. It's not exactly sustainability, but it's about how you treat people, how you manage with empathy.
0: A large part of the world's cotton is grown in India, but it's mostly small holdings. Yeah. I heard you on a video that you'd made for the Sustainable Fashion Forum where you said if one massive mechanized American farmer changed their practices, they could change everything but in order to do that in india you would have to persuade uh you know thousand minds and hearts. thousand minds
1: yeah i was talking to rebecca one of the first few chats we were having and she was telling me like she's a small-scale farmer and she was saying me he just has like two thousand acres or something i was like what? two thousand what yeah. like is that real like thousand <laughs> yeah. acres two thousand acres let so, me
0: let me just stop you there just in case people don't know who rebecca burgess is you said fiber shed just tell us
1: yeah, Fiber Shed. They they in California. They run regenerative fiber systems. It's a very similar model to ours, but you know, much more extensive. They connect farmers to spinners, spinners to viewers, viewers to brands, and you know, it's like a whole collective and creating a regenerative system from ground up. And I think that's why, like, it was really fitting when I first heard our podcast that I was not really sure that she would get back and think, because I'm pretty sure she's like absolutely busy, but. She just saw something. She liked my idea and she decided to support me, which was absolutely incredible. And that's why like, we were able to do what we do.
0: But when you heard about the scale involved in not just, I mean, her, she's small, but compared to, I mean, America's mad, right?
1: Yeah, it's massive. But yeah, Sustainable Fashion Forum, like I was talking about how one farmer can have an absolutely enormous impact. Like, you know, he, can, he has a control farming tree, but it's going to cost him a lot because- mm. A farmer, like harvester machine, can do 500 acres of harvesting a day.
0: What are the challenges inherent in working with many different smallholders?
1: They're trying to deal with uh, hundreds of different minds. And it's okay to convince one, and then you have to convince second. And like, most of the farmers in India, they don't have access to education. So they don't really know what we're talking about. Like, they don't even know what organic farming is. Like, they when, when we first started, like, organic farming, people were like, are you really going to do with kowdang? Like it's it's a joke. And we had to pay them upfront. saying that. We pay you up front. Just don't worry about what, you know, if it's possible or not, because you've already gotten paid and ha- work together with us. You see if it works out, then we do more. Like, you know, you don't have to come into like other people don't have to come in around you. And just one person, one farmer, we do it. We make it happen. And when it happened it worked for everyone. Like it worked for farmers. They got three times more, four times more income, less shared risk because brands were coming on board a year in advance to commit to a certain... Well, that was the other thing I
0: wanted to pick up. You're going to, you have to ask people to really invest in this time-wise, yeah, exactly. energy-wise, lead times.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's really important to... Because at the moment, if you see the current system, the entire risk falls upon the farmer. So let's say if there's a bad weather, who has to bear it? Like the farmer. If it's a good weather, who benefits? It's the brand's. Like, you know, uh, the price of cotton goes down because the harvest is amazing. So at the same time, like when things are not okay, it's about a shared risk. You know, it's about equal income distribution throughout the supply chain. There's so many things. It's just a small mindset. Maybe the brands would, it would affect a very, very small portion of their profit, but it can have an incredible impact in that place. And yeah. You,
0: you said to me last night or the other night when we had dinner, that fashion people kept sort of saying to you wide-eyed, like, wow, regenerative. Yeah. Tell me, what is this new thing? And you're like, it's not a new thing.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's the, it's the most simplest thing. Like, you know, in India, people who are not really skilled at something, maybe as a mechanic or something, you know, they're not educated. They always fall back upon farming because it's always there for you. It, always, it has a sp- place for everyone. You know, if you sow the right seeds, the plant's going to come out. If you take care of it, it's going to give you an eel and you can sell it. So what I'm trying to say here is like agriculture is something which everyone has a place in and it's the most simplest thing. Like, well, you know everyone used to. Yeah, everyone used to, but it's the most simplest thing. Like what we do as a regenerative agriculture is the simplest form of farming. There's no Complexity. We create complexity with like GMO and then chemicals, and then this. This is all complex. What we do is, we just like make sure the animals graze the field, the cow dung goes in. There's nitrogen, the plant grows. There's diversity, so there's less pest attack. There's science behind everything. Like it's not that, you know, when we have cover crops. What tell us what cover crops are. Cover crops are a crop where you keep alongside the main crop for the insects to feed on. So they have a space, they have a home. So you might
0: plant alongside the cotton a row yeah, of what? cover
1: crops, uh, trap crops. So trap and cover, cover crops are alfalfa, sun hem. We have other crops where you can cut down, put it in the soil, and it would relish uh, soil health. But trap crops are crops where you put them, and the birds would come and eat that and go, or like animals, or like insects, anything. Like you know, they would they won't affect the main crop. So you know, you're basically giving, providing food for everything within that ecosystem. You create a holistic place for everyone to thrive.
0: I was thinking about something else you said to me about common sense, because, and I hadn't thought around the complexity of the modern system, but what you just said there is, right. we over-engineer, we invent whole new chemical systems, we bring in scientists who then try to affect the dna of the crop so that it can perform differently but what you're describing is just how people did it in a kind of common sense way like oh we need to do this because it makes sense and then we'll do this because it works
1: yeah it's the most simplest way to do things and like in india like there's no science behind the panchagavia the spraying the growth promoting liquid we make using five elements of cow like milk ghee buttermilk cow dung and cow urine like it's it's all it comes together and it becomes like a sounds horrible yeah it, <laughs> what, what no, do you do it actually it? smells really nice once it? it's, it's very fruity when even it, when it's actually made but anyway like so what know, it,
0: it's like a nutrient
1: yeah it's a new growth promoter when you spray it the growth is really good also these things like they don't have science they're not science backup and that's exactly what we are trying to create is trying to create something take all these traditional techniques and put science behind it. Why is something working? Why is something not working? And backing that up by science is our goal because these things, people just did it. Like it was instinctive, it's basic, it's very easy. Co-urine, you get it, you collect it, you just leave it in the water, like alongside during irrigation. And it's amazing when you spray it alongside some pungent leaves, you know, it becomes a pest repellent. Like, it's very simple. Like, it's just called urine. Like, you know what I mean? You don't have to have H2H04, like, man, mixed with this chemical and 1616. 16, there's so many chemicals, like, that, it's complex.
0: Well, you don't have a background as a farmer. Your father and your grandfather were in the textiles trade. Did you study fashion?
1: No. I said that's why the industry, they never accepted us uh, to become a part, because first, no fashion school. In your area? Yeah, not, not in area, but like I've never been to a fashion school. So in, to really enter like the fashion scene, you have to have like a fashion degree. Because I I remember like I did so many interviews. I went to so show many showrooms. They absolutely loved what we were doing. But it all ended up with the fact that like, hey, which fashion school did you go to? Did or, it? Yeah, it did. And I would have no answers. Like I didn't go to fashion school. I went to business school. I just did that school. to you. Yeah.
0: Uh, but I was just curious. I knew you didn't because... You've shown in Paris Fashion Week, you've shown at Milan White, you've collaborated with, I was thinking about lovely Richard Malone, who's an Irish fashion designer that went to St. Martin's. So you you know a lot of fashion people. I was introduced to you by a mutual fashion friend in Ursula de Castro. So you're in fashion, but you didn't come from a fashion background. But you also didn't come from a farming background.
1: Yeah, I think you have to barge in. Like, I'm not in fashion, but, you know, I had to barge in because that's the market, but I don't really want to inside it you know i like it being outside and you know working with really amazing people from fashion yeah i'm in a privileged space but it's not easy to get here like especially for a person first thing no fashion background second thing no fashion connections so you're literally like working your way up like trying to figure it th-
0: you're a very good connector when i said to you have you been on podcast before you were like well <laughs>
1: and then start reeling them all off i was like oh my god been on
0: every podcast but you also were forbes 30 under 30 Uh, When you were how old?
1: Uh, 24.
0: I mean, you've actually been extremely good at getting your story out there, at networking and at being heard with your ideas. Do you think it's because, I like the way you said barged in, but do you think it's because the idea has its time?
1: Yeah, definitely. See, there's no like... Apart from the fact that you're awesome. But do you think that that we're ready for it? I think uh, I always think about like, the logics and the patterns and you know why things happen and i just like come to a conclusion all the time there's you know it just happens there's no like if you ask me if this is fitting to this and there's so many other farmers who are doing what we are doing there's so many other brands who are doing what we are doing but we have a platform to speak we have amazing people we work with and you know i'm fortunate to be in this place but even if the idea has its place there's something working beyond what you can imagine you know like for us Just randomly, I watch this movie. Next morning, I write to Rebecca Burgers. I don't even have her email. I'm just like cold guessing that this is her email and our Burgers at Gmail or like, you know, random guesses. And I just get a reply the very same day. Like, what are the odds that she does? And then we have another brand, Christy Down, reaching out to them at the same time and we get connected. Like, this is like absolutely bizarre, like th- how things happen. But if you ask me if there's a formula for that, there's definitely not. Like it just happens. And, you know, when it happens, you have to be prepared and, you know, give yourself in. And that's all you need. Like you give the best of yourself.
0: I mean, it's amazing, right? You could be otherwise knocking on doors for 10 years and no one answers.
1: I think it really, it starts with like Times blank blank oh, do and, Yeah, it just starts with that because like... So
0: she's a wonderful journalist involved in Fashion Open Studio. And she actually wrote... Or I think the first book about sustainable fashion, we were talking about this the other day, it's called Green is the New Black. And it came out way before everyone else's. So she's a pioneer.
1: Yeah, I think she's been incredible. Like every time there was a letdown, she would be there. Like she really believed in me. And, you know, the first three or four years, like she was always there, like recommending me to people, like trying to get people to work with us. Because she really believed in what I was doing. And How'd you you, meet her? It's a long story, but I think like Marion... Whom? Uh, Marion Hume. Yeah, and she, she, uh, I wrote to her, again, like random but emails. But you reached
0: out. I'm pushing you for this because I think our listeners who, lots of people, we're very interested in the story of this Oshadian of Cotton, but I think also we have listeners who are thinking, how do I do that with my idea? And how hard it is when doors are closed. And I have an online course platform. We talk about this a lot with small business. How do you get ahead? How do you make connections when you feel like you Start from not knowing anyone, but you've done it. And actually, did it just float? No, because time and again, you come back to this thing that you had figured out who the people were that you wanted to approach, and contacted them directly. You've done it. You've gone this one. I'm going here, and you you acted on hearing that these people might be able to connect you.
1: Yeah, I'll be honest. Like thousands of emails, You're a no reply, yeah. and you know, like you just need one yes. And even if you get a million no's, that's fine. You know, you just need that one year. And, like, Marianne connected me. She was really busy at the time, but she connected me with Tamsin and Ursula, both who have been, like, absolutely incredible support since. And Tamsin was, like, literally, she was, like, a guiding light, like, every time. Because it took us three years of absolute failing. Like, you know, I have this big debt. I'm 26, and, like, shit. I was like, how do I pay this back? And, you know, I'm down. And then I, I keep writing to every season. I was like, Tamsin this is no good, like, you know, and she's like, no, that's fine. There's a lot more her head. There's so much more to explore. And she was always backing up. And like, you know, and then we got to a certain point where we started like doing something that was worthwhile, that was profitable. And like, you know, we started generating some income. And at that time, it was a fate or whatever can we can be called, but Rebecca Burgess, then she comes in. So, you know, it's like millions of no's, but you just need that one yes at the right time. But for that, like, you can't, just sit in your bed and wait for that yes to come in. You have to like keep barging into all the doors. You get kicked out from thousands, <laughs> but then, you know, you let it, you get let in. And that's the thing, like once you get there, then it's all about like working hard and resilient and improvising what you do. I mentioned
0: your father and grandfather being in textiles. What did they make?
1: They were making a uh, traditional Indian wear, lungis and dhotis uh, So my dad, I think it all comes from my granddad where, he used to travel from north of India to south of India. He used to carry suitcases, samples. He would just meet, like, he wouldn't know the language because if you know in India, like, absolutely different languages. Like, so in 1970s, he's just, like, walking with suitcase to different towns, different city. He found a business partner down south, and, you know, he just settled there, and then my parent, my dad, studied there, brought up. And I am the first person in the family to actually have, like, access to good, good education. So I, sent, I went to England, I come back. And then I was supposed to carry forward the family business, but I decided to be a black sheep. Mm-hmm. And because I saw things differently, you know, I have now I'm educated, then I don't have to go back and do those things in exact same way. But since it's a family business, you can't really go and change it because it's family, your uncles, your granddad, like everyone's involved.
0: Okay, let's talk more about Ashadi. I like this line every fabric tells the story of those who helped to make it a reality.
1: Yeah, it's. Yeah, people fail to understand, like, when they look at a brand, they only see that collection, that design, and, like, you know, people think, like, it all comes to that. It's really cool. It's really fun side of the industry where you get to see those fun things, the designs, the fashion shows, and, you know, the presentations and, you know, the collaborations and celebrities wearing that. But that's not what it's about. Like, that's trying to be a face of, something which is so laborious, which has so many hands, which has so many skills, which has a lot of hard work of thousands and thousands and thousands, millions and millions of workers across the world. Like it's farmer, like a farmer works eight hours in absolutely crazy heat, just bending down, weeding, bending down, harvesting the cotton, like imagine bending down for eight hours or like, let's say not eight hours, like even five hours, you know, cause they have rest and like, you know, thing. but I can't do that for five minutes. I can't stand in that sun for five minutes. I can't bend down and do that. So like there's so much labor like involved. It's so laborious, so much hard work, so much skill. Like, for example, to hand weave something, to natural dye something, to block print something. A person can only block print 20 meters a day. A person can only harvest 20 kilos of cotton a day. A person can only weave five meters a day on a hand loom. A person can only natural dye 50 kilos a day. And that's why all these like crafts, like, you know, they are dying out because they are not able to feed into this demand.
0: That's why at the beginning when we mentioned the block printing workshop, it's so wonderful to get people to actually try to do it and to understand. We always talk about this with sewing. Try and put a zip in something. Takes a really long time. So when people actually see the steps that go into making something by hand, they have a completely different view of it and connect with it more obviously but we're very disconnected and most people don't know that and actually I've never thought about the farmer bending in this in the heat
1: yeah but I, I actually never thought about it since until we did the farming and then I went to, to the farming and I actually tried my hands on doing it and, and it was like what it's really like I don't really do it like you know I just want to see what it's like you know so I understand like why do they need this break or you know we give them eight hour shift are they okay to only work for like six hours and we give them break in between how many breaks are we going? and that's when i started realizing like whoa like this is absolutely insane an example like for you see yesterday the block prints you know they've really understood like what it takes to block print and people who have block printed it themselves you think they're going to throw away that shirt no like they're not so it's about valuing and it starts with consumers like you know when they buy stuff they really value what they buy, and they really take care of it until, you know, it's a life cycle. And that kind of mindset has to pass on from consumer to brands to everyone.
0: All right, then let's talk about fairly distributed profit. You say that you're redesigning the system from the ground up. So how does that work in practice?
1: We don't really follow minimum wage because like minimum wage is absolutely nothing like people can't survive with minimum wages you know people are proud to say that we pay minimum wages like but it's sad because you're only paying the minimum least amount of money what a minimum wage is what is the least amount of money you can pay someone and get away but that's not true like we don't decide that we we see like how healthcare, education savings if these three things are met, i think that's a living wage they have good access to healthcare, food and education for their kids. And then they're on top of that, they're able to save mm. something that's a living wage. But minimum wage is something where it only covers the food or pays a little bit of the debt and things like that.
0: What structurally how does it work actually? Because you're working with collectives of farmers, you're working with weavers. How's it structured?
1: We work with, dip, like, just like we have a community of farmers, we have a community of weavers, we work with, we have a community of natural dyes, we work with, we have a community of brands, like, you know, the brands come on board a year in advance, and they let us know that this is the amount of fabric projection, and they give a commitment, both financially and committing to the quantities and stuff like that, and that kind of finance is used to finance the farmers, and we make all the pest repellents, all the compost, everything, the seeds harvesting everything is done from our end where we there's no investment for farmers it's all done as a partnership with them and then we also after that we also buy cotton at a price which is much higher than market so the farmers are earning two to three times more income we saw this article it was saying like an average farmer was organic cotton i read about this in that article which became a new york times one yeah new york times one it talks about how like a, a farmer in average income of a farmer in Madhya Pradesh is $227 or something around that. I can't remember, but let's say even if it's $300 a year, seven months, right? $300 by seven, like how much is that? It's like 50 quid, like what is 50 quid? So the farmer, what he can't just farm. So he's working as a watchman or as something, as a neighbor. And then he comes back and does farming. And now the cotton prices have gone up by 40%. And go back to the farming, be the farmers we work with, there are other farmers around, they don't get paid that they don't premium. Get it.
0: So, this is, there's so much here to unpack. The cotton price has risen, the Indian cotton price has risen because there's a move away from cotton that could be tainted by modern slavery out of Xinjiang, but also because COVID and Monsoon. Export tariffs, monsoons, okay.
1: There's been crazy monsoon last year and the COVID and... So less know, supply, right? More demand. Yeah, less supply, more demand. And the demand is fed to international markets, so the locally... But the thing is, like forty, the cotton has gone up by 40, 50%, like maybe more by this time in the last six, seven months. Normally that rise is over a period of 10 years or five years or something like that, but that's that rise has been like in the last six months or a year. But, but the farmers aren't getting farmers rich of it. No. Like the farmers, like, they used to get paid like 80 bucks, 80 rupees a kilo, 80, 85. And they are now getting paid like 90 rupees, which is like five rupees more.
0: So someone's taking all that profit off the Where top. Where is it going to? Before we get off this fair distribution of wealth thing why don't you tell us that story about when you first worked with a cooperative of hand weavers uh when you were a designer or purely designing and you found out that half less than half of what you were paying for the fabric was going to the weavers
1: yeah so we started working with the cooperative society and and what was happening is we would pay let's say 150 bucks a meter or 200 bucks a meter depending on how intricate the fabric is only 30 bucks was going to the workers but we were not aware but in a couple of months, I built a really good rapport because I was working inside the co-op. I was getting the yarn, getting it dyed, warping it with some people, and then we're talking loading. with
0: them. Yeah, you know they what be- they're doing. They
1: doing became the- like, yeah. really good friends. But then they started saying that we are not supposed to tell you, but like we only get paid this much, this month. So of course, like I can't go and convince the co-op to you know. I tried doing that, but they were like, you know what, you do this or get out. And I was like, okay, that's fine. So I, we had to pay people, also pay the co-op, but also pay the people, like the weavers or the warpers separately. So I was doing that and stuff like that. But that's exactly what the entire system is. That's why textile supply chain is failing or is probably going to fail because the current supply chain doesn't divide the income fairly. If you see there like spinners, weavers, factories, they're making billions, brands, they're making billions. But why at the cost of some labor or like a tailor or like a farmer or like a weaver like who was not even able to afford like basic food like i don't know like why people have that kind of extractive mindset because you can still pay people fairly and you know that small increase in payment can completely change someone's lifestyle and it's not going to really change the brand's finances considerably or like in a big way a small change can change someone's lifestyle for good. You use this phrase
0: exchange over extraction.
1: Yeah, I think that's exactly what it is. I also want to travel. I'm in Amsterdam. I'm able to afford to come here and you know travel like everyone wants to do that. That's okay. But the people who work with us, they should also have a privilege to at least the basics, to at least like, you know, the food, healthcare, savings, education have a content life, I wouldn't say happy because like happy is a measurable thing, but content is like, you know, are people who work with you content? If they are not, then what is the point of you doing that? What is the point of having billion dollars or like a million dollars in, in, as land when the people who are actually making that million dollars for you, like these thousands of laborers, they're struggling with the basic. And I think it's like, people don't understand that if you start investing in them, you don't take that as an expense but you have to take that as an investment because those people that skill is what's that weaver that fabric that dyes the block prints are what that sells and that is like an investment what do you do when you when you invest in a land you call it investment but why do you call investment in human as expenses for human resource like you know
0: yeah it's true Overheads,
1: <laughs> overheads, yeah, overheads, expenses, and like how you something we need
0: to squeeze and yeah, cut squeeze out, yeah. and the like margins too the, much.
1: I think the word human resource, like you've classified humans as resource, uh, which is pretty sad. Like when you think about it, human resource, like what is a human? Like is human a good? And like when you go into production factories, they have these IE studies uh, where they do like production efficiencies and stuff like that, and it's like, are all the five fingers same? No, like, you know, a person can do 1,000 units. That doesn't necessarily mean, like, the other person can do 800 units. And that's his capability. Like, you know, you have to understand it. That's why we don't pay any contract or any... We don't have anyone on contract wages. Everyone is on a company salary. What
0: I want to end on, on Cotton, but just where does this come from in you, this sense of social justice and wanting to... Perhaps we all want to respect human rights, but, you know, where does it come from in you, this desire to challenge
1: injustice? I mean, it's just common sense. Like, you know, would you want your son or a daughter or your sister or your father or your mom, anyone in this situation, when you don't want someone, you know, who you're close to in that situation, like, why would you want that of someone else? It's the same like... Is it just empathy? Yeah, it's just empathy. It's just like thinking, you know, you have a place, you have a platform to really change something. And when you're in that place... You really have to do it. Like, you know. Is it spiritual? um, I would say it's a lot of it is like karma. I really believe in that. Like what you sow is what you reap and, you know, right intention. I think like the reason I was able to do, I'm able to do what I'm doing now is because when I started this, it was through right intention. So even though I didn't have skills, like you said, no fashion, no textile, no farming, nothing background. It's kind of working out for me because I think it's all coming from the right place the world is at a point where everyone's getting aware now about these things and if you don't change if you don't make that right move you're going to get left behind.
0: Well I'm sure so many people are going to really love this episode and want to get in touch with you and I really am appreciative of you joining us on the podcast.
1: Thank you thank you so much Claire it's been a long time coming I've always wanted to be here and I'm so glad to be here today. That's so
0: nice thank you. you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. You can find the show notes for each episode over on our website www.thewardrobecrisis.com. And that's where you can also sign up for our free sustainable fashion newsletters. I hope you've enjoyed the show. I'd love you to help us spread the word. Tell a friend, share on social media, or leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps new listeners find us on the app. You can get in touch with us on social media. The show is on Instagram, at The Wardrobe Crisis. And I'm on there too. And on Twitter, I'm at Mrs Press. My
1: friends all feel that I'm carrying us to I tell them all that they are wrong. Because I love you. Because I love you. Because I love you. Because I love you.
0: Because I love you.